Suddenly, investors are panicked that inflation is taking over. But what if they're wrong? Well, that could be a costly mistake if they're betting their portfolio's future on it. Because there's a strong case to be made that we're now actually entering a period of disinflation, one that has a high risk of tipping into outright deflation by next year. So you have the biggest fiscal cliff coming, the biggest monetary cliff coming, and that's why I think the chances are for this, the, the greatest bubble in the history of bubbles, which is the US bond and stock market, is going to most likely implode next year. Hello and welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money in the markets so that you can make more informed decisions about how to manage and grow your wealth. I'm very fortunate to be joined today by Michael Pento, who's the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies, which manages capital by focusing on what Michael terms the two most important factors to successful investing the second derivatives of growth and inflation, both of which we've seen a big spike in this year. Michael frequently appears on CNBC, Bloomberg, and other business news media. He's also author of the book, The Coming Bond Market Collapse. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Adam. I just wanted to say as a caveat here, I'm no longer allowed on CNBC. <laughs> they threw me off. Completely. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, I've been. I've been. I'm part of the cancel culture, so I'm no longer welcome on that the network. Okay. Happily, well, here, let, happily, let, let, happily. So ha much happier to be with you. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, all right. Well, look, Michael. Let's jump right in here. Um, before I get to the long list of questions I have for you, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of our guests um, just before introducing any potential biases of my own. What is your current assessment? of the global economy and financial markets today? Well, how long is the interview? Because you have a lot of questions and then that question could be like, you know, an hour. Uh, <laughs> okay, brief, uh, let me briefly just explain to you that the inflation deflation economic cycle model that I created had me long inflation and growth in 2020 and the very early part of 2021. I then changed slowly morphed into a more disinflationary posture, which I maintain until today. So I think we're headed for, or are in and heading into deeper into disinflation, which I'm afraid could very quickly morph into outright deflation and possibly even depression in 2022. And I'll be glad to expound on that thesis if you'd like me to. Great. I will absolutely like you to. Um, very Why wouldn't quickly, you want me to? <laughs> yeah. Very quickly for our viewers who perhaps aren't as steeped in financial jargon as you and I, I think most people kind of feel they understand inflation and deflation. Can you just explain disinflation for a second? So you mentioned the second derivative. It's just the rate of change. So slow down in the rate of change. So if right now, the way the government measures inflation is say 8% and it goes to 4%, well, you still have inflation, it's just the rate of change has decelerated. So that's disinflation. That's different than deflation, which is an outright contraction in prices, which I am not anticipating. I'm just saying that we will have inflation, it will be sticky, it will still be increasing, but the rate of change will slow down. That's all I'm saying right now. Very, okay, very great. clear distinction between that 
and deflation and depression, which is possible in 2022. All right. Uh, very concisely and well put. Um, all right. And I do want to get to your, your, your thoughts there about outright deflation, because um, we had former uh, Federal Reserve senior economist uh, Lacey Hunt on the program a few weeks back who made a very empirical argument for deflation. And so it sounds like you and he may be simpatico in, in certain ways in which you're looking at the markets. Um, but first, I want to I want to touch on some recent articles that you've written, some of your recent work. Um, you've been ringing a warning bell that the strong recovery in both the economy and the financial markets is in the process of peaking. Uh, in your post last week, titled "Peak of the Fake Bull Market," uh, you say <laughs> you see peak stimulus, peak asset valuations, peak profit margins, peak tax relief peak vaccination distribution, uh, all in all, you sort of see peak optimism wherever you look. Um, you say that the tailwinds that we've been experiencing you know, since the beginning of this year, driving uh, GDP growth and, um, uh, and asset prices uh, will soon turn into headwinds. Can you explain why? Well, you, first of all, you did a pretty good job <laughs> already on that question. Thanks. You have the most thorough questions I've ever, I've ever been on any, with anybody. It's very nice to be with you. Okay, so uh, what caused the shortest recession in the history of NBER data? So um, National Bureau of Economic Research, they're the ones who declare when a recession starts and where a recession ends. They said the recession was only two months long when we shut down the entire global economy. Well, why is it that the stock market boomed right away and why was the uh, recession so truncated is because the Treasury of the United States spent six trillion dollars. They borrowed and spent six trillion dollars in a year and a half. Four trillion dollars of that six trillion dollars wasn't borrowed from anybody. It wasn't taxed. It was given to them by the Federal Reserve. It was printed by Mr. Powell, handed to the Treasury, and the Treasury sent it out in various forms, PPP, loans and grants. Um, helicopter money, you know, everybody on the planet who didn't make over like $200,000 got the uh, planet, the United States, got $1,400 stimulus checks. Um, we had something called enhanced unemployment, which was in many states $900 a week to stay home and not produce goods and services, which of course created bottlenecks and um, created shortages. So uh, continue. We told people they didn't have to pay their student loans. We told people they didn't have to pay their mortgages. Um, we even now are giving something called expanded child tax credits. It's normally $2,000 per child. Now it's 3,000 or 3,600, depending on the age of the child. Those checks, we divided that in half. So we're saying, so if you get entitled to uh, 3,600 per child, you're not getting $1,800 in checks per month. So it would be, um, uh, I think it's 300, so yeah, 300 times six. So over the next six months, you're getting $300 checks sent to your household. So half of that $3,600 um, enhanced child tax credit is coming this year. It all ends in January. So 2022 is gonna see the biggest fiscal cliff that the world has ever seen. So again, in the last year and a half, we sent the equivalent of $50,000 
to every family in the United States of largesse, of bread and circuses, most of which was monetized by the Federal Reserve, which created this ersatz, fake and phony boom economy, and most importantly, a booming stock market predicated on this fiscal support, which almost completely goes away in 2022. The fiscal support equaled 25% of GDP. That rate of change is going to 2% of GDP next year. So when you add that to the monetary cliff, which is coming, we, we have never before had a QE at this pace. The, the QE pace in 2008 and nine was $85 billion a month. That was the peak of quantitative easing. And in other words, the pace of asset purchases by the Federal Reserve. That was made $120 billion in March of 2020. It's going to go to zero sometime in 2022. So you have the biggest fiscal cliff coming, the biggest monetary cliff coming, and that's why I think the chances are for this, the, the greatest bubble in the history of bubbles, which is the US bond and stock market, is going to most likely implode next year. Okay, very well said. So um, you, you talk about the greatest bubble in stocks and bonds. You know, folks, including myself, have, have often referred to those twin bubbles as the everything bubble. Um, this time it's for all the mar marbles. Um, sounds like real estate. Adam, you got to add real estate in there too. Well, you, I mean, it's really everything, right? You got to add real estate, you got to add cryptocurrencies, literally almost every asset class you can think of. Um, and the reason why I'm mentioning that though is because that coin that term was coined well before coronavirus hit the stage, right? So we already had concerns about bubble levels of valuation. And then we've had this just historically extraordinary uh, tsunami of both monetary and fiscal stimulus that you just so, so uh, successfully uh, described there for us. So kind of what I hear you saying, and it makes sense to me, is, is, is we're having sort of the pig in a python moment where we just shoved an unprecedented amount of liquidity into the system, uh, both by the Federal Reserve and from Congress. And we are now getting to the point where that pig is about to pass out of the python, right? But, but the problem is, is that the world has acclimated to having that much <laughs> stimulus in the system. So once yeah. it goes, the question is, is how does a world that's begun dependent upon all that stimulus, uh, you know, how, how does it fare once the drug that it's so dependent on is, is quickly and forcibly removed from the system. Is that a good analogy? Very good analogy. And the answer is not very well. You know, you're talking about um, the rate of change. So asset prices have become addicted to this constant infusion of fiscal and monetary support. So for example, if you look at my favorite metric and Warren Buffett's too, is the total market cap of equities, the value of all equities as a percentage of the underlying economy. The normal ratio here is something in the order of like 80, you know, 0.8 or 80%. It's now over 205% of GDP. I mean, if you look at a chart, it, it's just it's just almost like a Jeff Bezos, you know, launch to uh, the stratosphere. <laughs> and and, and um, it, it's totally untenable and impossible, I would say, to maintain that, that yawning and trenchant gap 
the trenchant gap between asset prices and the underlying economy unless you have all of this artificial stimuli. And as I just went over before, it's all going away. And here's the thing I want to mention too. You know, you think about people, you know, listen, a lot of people think of me as somebody maybe might, might be more um, immured to being an inflationista. Uh, I love gold. I think that the ultimate end game for this country and for the entire developed world is to turn their fiat currencies into confetti. So I found myself being a little uncomfortable. You know, I sold most of my gold in August of 2020. I just recently began taking my uh, position back. So I have a 20, I had a 20% allocation to precious metals. And now I only have 5% allocation to precious metals because I, I realized the, the real interest rates would be falling, which is the most important determinant of where uh, the price of gold is going. But I found myself being very uncomfortable, Adam, saying, you know, you know, I would love to be one of those people who comes on your show and say, oh, inflation is transitory. What BS? It's going to be permanent and it's going to be permanent and it's going to wipe out the middle class. Well, eventually that might be true. But what's true for investors now is totally different than what could happen in a few years. So as I said in the beginning of this interview, that my model switched for, from one that's hedged for uh, inflation and rapid growth to one more of disinflation and slowing growth was very beneficial. I made that change a few months ago. But if you look at things like um, cyclical stocks, industrial stocks, bank stocks, they're all down very significantly. Some, some of them are down between 10 and 16% in the last few months. So I sold those in favor of what? Bond and bond-like proxy. So here's a guy who wrote a book called Becoming Bond Market Collapse. <laughs> yeah. Buying duration bonds and duration stocks. Duration meaning anything that's sensitive to long-term interest rates going down. So, you know, I did that and I said, boy, I hope people don't, don't hate me for this. I mean, but my, my, my number one goal is, I think we talked about this a little bit in the pre-interview. Pre my number one goal is to, is to be correct, is to have people that are under my, my jurisdiction here to be saved from dramatic plunges in their principle and to participate in bull markets in the correct asset classes and style factors. Well, I mean, you know, it, it might serve me um, better philosophically to say, hey, I know that gold's going to $10,000 an ounce someday. I know the dollar is going to be burned into oblivion. And I, and I agree with that. But, but what does that do me? How does that serve me if I always invest like that? I can't do that. I won't do that. So I, I was hedged more towards disinflation. I went on the record way before, you know, uh, it was fashionable to do so. And it was very beneficial. For instance, like a day like Monday, yesterday, when the market gets wiped out and cyclical stocks and industrial stocks and bank shares, everything that benefits from a, wind, a widening yield curve get crushed. It was great to be long zero coupon bonds because they, they skyrocketed in price on Monday, which offered us a great hedge against, um, against uh, what happened yesterday which was just a scare, a growth scare and an inflation scare. I expect many more of those to occur, especially in 2022. And sometime in 2022, I'm gonna to have to change from being hedged for disinflation to perhaps hedged against deflation and depression. And in that case, you wanna own only four things. There's only four things that work, but here they are. 
Um, and they're not very they're not very popular because most people who manage money like and think like me who are Austrian economists like me will say, well, you want to own gold. Maybe you want to own foreign stocks. Uh, no, there's only four things that work in a deflationary depression. And they are large cash positions. They are short duration bonds. They are long the US dollar. Oh boy, here comes the hate mail. And they are uh, short. They are either long ETFs that go up when the market corrects. So, so you would be long a short or inverse ETF. Those are the only four things that will work in uh, a deflationary depression. It won't even be gold because it's a liquidity crisis. It'll be gold. Gold does very well in disinflation because real interest rates are falling, but it doesn't do well in the liquidity crisis when people are selling everything to get into dollars, short-term treasuries, and cash. All right, uh, great. You went. Uh, <laughs> you went. You went straight to where I was going to progress over oh, the next bunch of questions. No, 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 no. It, 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 it's it's all great. Um, okay, so um, I guess first question for you is. Uh, you are, if I understand correctly, you are now positioned for disinflation, which you right. think will persist for some period of time. You're concerned that at some point there is going to be a, a deflationary episode, I'll call it there. Um, two questions. One, do you expect that to be sort of short and violent? Um, you know, where you mentioned like everything like gold is getting thrown out because people have to make margin calls and stuff like that. Um, and um, what are you going to be monitoring to determine when it's time to switch from a disinflationary position to a deflationary one? Another great question. So uh, I don't rely on emotions and I'm not a stop clock. So I have, I have this model, it's a 20 point model. And that tells me when to, to get longer of this asset or shorter of that asset or that sector or that style factor. So um, one of the things I was looking at that made me comfortable with going long disinflationary hedges was the 210 yield curve spread. So I noticed that that topped out, that spread stopped widening and started to contract about three months ago, Adam. I noticed break even spread started to roll over. When? A few months ago. Uh, I, I noticed that um, uh, the junk bond spread to treasuries stopped narrowing about three months ago. I noticed that lumber futures, copper futures started to roll over about a month ago. And that just, that, that kind of, so I have a 20 point model. Those are some of the components of the model, but the predicate was, so I had a predicate. The predicate was we are approaching the end of maximum fiscal and monetary support that I just went over at the beginning of this interview. And then the predicate was, well, then hence you should see a slowdown in the rate of change of growth and inflation. So I, 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 that was the thesis, which was then backed up by the fundamentals of the model, which gave me confidence to hedge against um, disinflation. So what would make me um, wanna get long of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I, which I just went over, you know, cash, short-term bonds, shorts, and the US dollar, what would get me nervous would be a, um, a yield curve 210 spread that starts to go to zero and maybe even inverts. Um, 
What would get me really, really nervous would be the junk, junk bond spreads to Treasury start to widen out instead of a stasis, which is a record narrowing to the yield of Treasuries. Uh, LIBOR OIS spreads, uh, Ameribor spreads. I know what, I, listen, I might be getting arcane or in the weeds. The, 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 the idea here, Adam, is that there's a process here. Like a scientist would look at a, a weather, you know, a weather map and, you know, take various measurements of the atmosphere and say, look at the radar, look at this front, look at the pressure differences and say, okay, this is what I think is going to happen based on these measurements. And that's what, that's what I do. Um, it's amazing that more people don't do it. Maybe they don't know, or they just say they can't do it. Or do you mean, in my opinion, most of Wall Street are just salesmen, salespeople. So what they do is they just raise assets and they plug and play it into what their you know wirehouse says to do, which is some kind of mixture between stocks and bonds, and hope everything works out well. I don't do that. I look at the macroeconomic conditions, so I can place my assets in the best asset classes and sectors and style factors, depending on the macroeconomic condition, and then most importantly, protect and then even profit from when, what? When you have these deflationary recessions and depressions where you wipe out 50 to 80% of your portfolio. And I wanna mention this to you, Adam. You know, the wirehouses on the deep state of Wall Street will say, hey, I, you know, no one can time the market. Well, I believe when they say they can't do it because I don't think they can. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. If you look at what happened in China in 2007, their Shanghai, the Shanghai Composite Index is still down about 40% from where it was in 2007. If you look at um, Japan, the, the Nikkei Dow, that's down about 30% from where it was in 1989. In the, in the 80s, yeah, crazy. 89. So the idea that you that Wall Street could just say, you know, just, just buy and hold, it'll come back because the Fed has your back. Well, I'm pretty sure the People's Bank of China is trying to get the people's back. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure the Bank of Japan tries to have the back of the people in Japan. But you're talking about, in some cases, over a decade in China and 30 freaking years where their nominal, their nominal prices are 30% below where they were. And you know, again, in nominal terms, not even adjusting for inflation. I'm not saying you're down after 30 years when you subtract inflation. I'm saying you're just down. <laughs> you're down for decades. So something like that could happen in the United States. And you say, well, well, Michael, maybe you're just a Cassandra. Maybe you're full of uh, BS. But let's just, let's just say I'm correct, again, that we're going to have a deflationary recession slash depression in 2022 because the Fed's withdrawing all of its liquidity. Let's say that happens sometime in the second quarter. When, the, when the, the comparison between Q2 2022 and the growth and inflation rates of Q2, uh, Q2 of 2021 are going to be impossible. I mean, you're talking about the worst comparisons. So the base effects are going to be horrific year over year. And then you add in all the fiscal monetary cliff. I think there's a very good chance you're going to, re you're going to get a repo crisis. You're going to get a junk bond crisis. And for a market that has a record amount of margin debt and is the most overextended and richest valuation in history, you could get a, an absolute depression, which is engendered by a stock market crash. So the, the two can, could happen concurrently, feed off of each other, Adam, because the wealth effect is going to go into reverse. 
And then you say, well, okay, then Mr. Penta, won't the Fed just come and save the day? And my retort is maybe, perhaps, but what are they gonna do? Are they gonna cut interest rates? Uh, no, they have zero room to cut interest rates. We're at, we, will be, we will still be at zero all the way until the end of probably 2023. So you say, oh, maybe they'll go back into QE. I mean, really? Is, is that all they have is to start, you know, ramping up the, the counterfeiting machines? Is that is that going to be enough to placate the bond market? Because I think if they go back, and here's, a, here's another postulate for you. What if the bond market says, really? You can't get off zero and you have to go back into unlimited QE and helicopter money and universal basic income? Well, I know you'll never be able to um, drain your balance sheet. You'll never stop QE. You've permanently monetized $8.2 trillion of debt. That's the size of the Fed's balance sheet, by the way. It used to be $800 billion in 2008. Crazy. December of 2007, it was $800 billion. Now it's $8.2 trillion. And does the bond market stay quiescent in that environment, Adam? Maybe not. Maybe yields go cuckoo and um, just explode uh, to the stratosphere. In that case, there's no way the stock market's going to go up. It all depends on their ability to keep bond yields quiescent. The whole artificial edifice depends upon, is the, the, the predicate here is you have to have quiescence in the bond market and quiescence in inflation. Well, we jumped the shark there. We have inflation in some cases that's four times higher than the Fed's asinine goal of 2%. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I know, let me just ramble for another one, 30 seconds more. You know, the Fed spent years and years saying, we need 2% inflation. We cannot exist as a human a species or as an existential threat if we don't have 2% inflation in an economy. Well, the central bank used to say, the Fed was, was uh, enacted by Congress in 1913, used to be stable prices, which means zero inflation. Then it became, oh, we need 2% inflation. Then it became, oh, we need 2% plus inflation to make up for all the years we weren't at 2% inflation. And then it became, well, no, we need to um, make sure that we end all racial inequality in the United States. Um, and and it, then, it, then it became, oh, we have to eliminate all greenhouse gases in the United States before we you know, stop printing money. Now, I'm all for racial equality, and I'm, I'm, I'm an environmentalist, so let's get that out of the way. But is that the purview of the Federal Reserve? I'm not really sure that you know printing money can eliminate greenhouse gases or solve racial inequity. Just saying. Sorry to interrupt, but I, but I would say that you could actually directly tie printing money to increased inequality and pot potentially increased emissions. Hey, uh, yeah. Yes. Amen, brother. Go ahead. You you talk for a while. Tell me, <laughs> tell me how tell me why that's the that's the most truest statement you've ever said, or at least that I've ever heard. Well, I mean, uh, I've railed on it a lot in this program in, in recent videos in the past, but you know, basically on the inequality side, right? When the the Fed when all this liquidity tries to get shoved out into the system. Um, it doesn't get out equally. And in fact, a lot of what Lacey showed us was that a lot of it's not even really even making it into the real economy, um, but it's pooling up both in the banks, but also in financial assets. Well, who benefits when financial asset prices go up? Well, the people who own them, right? And we know that it's something like, 
87% of all financial assets are owned by the top 10% of households, right? And of course, that also creates inflation, which you've been talking about. And that inflation squeezes the lower classes because they're not participating in the upside, but they're having to swallow the increasing cost and everything else in the world. So uh, it's, it's really, I think, you know, in many ways, just a terrible scourge. And it really bugs me that right now we are cheering the perpetrator as the hero in the story, <laughs> yeah. where I think they're much more like the villain, at least when it comes yeah. to inequality. So, so the firemen and the, and the arsonists are the same arsonists, person. exactly. Yeah. To yeah. use, use a, you know, a trite uh, uh, expression. So, like you said, you know, if, if you were in the poor, the lower classes, the lower quintile uh, of the United States, you spent maybe 35, 40% of your income on what? Food, energy, shelter clothing but what gets hit the hardest look at the crb index well you know it was up you know 60 70 percent year over year not too long ago in fact it's still pretty much uh, you know we're close to the high um so they're they're getting squeezed they only own in many cases they don't even own any houses they rent um and uh so they can't afford the first time buyers been shut out of the real estate market thank you mr powell buying 40 billion dollars of mortgage-backed securities every month um they spend a lot of their income as i said on filling up their tank or on buying things that are predicated on base metals and energy and so they get wiped out and then you have mr powell step step up and say you know we have to keep doing this to protect the poor until each and every one of them has a job well you know whatever happened to markets adam whatever when in this country did we reject out of hand, the fact that markets are the best clearing mechanism, you know, economics has ever came up with. Let markets function freely. Allow recessions to take place. They're cleansing. They're cathartic. Allow bear markets to occur. They get rid of all of the, the, the unprofitable zombie firms, which now account to like 20 or 25 percent of all public companies are now. Zombified. It means they have to they have to go out and borrow money to pay interest on existing debt. They should go out of business. Okay, yes, we will have a recession. We will have a depression. But then we can have a real economy, not one predicated on trillions upon trillions of dollars that's deliberately, permanently monetized by our central bank. Well, so here's the question I have for you, Michael, um, which is, you know, we talked about how people call this the everything bubble I mentioned is for all the marbles. Um, one can make the argument that they have distorted the system for so long, they have, they have prevented the next bear market from happening for you know as long as they have. They've kicked that can so far down the road that the cost of the reckoning, the damage that it's going to do because you have all this energy, all this malinvestment that's built up is now so tremendously large that it just frightens the hell out of our policymakers and politicians, and nobody wants to preside over the reckoning. And so that everybody that is in control of the machinery will do everything they can to push it off for as long as possible. <laughs> what you and I know is only going to delay the inevitable and make it even worse. So getting back to your question about your point about um, the, the, the fiscal and monetary stimulus that we've seen, you predict is going to be a lot lower next year. Um, Lot. First question for you is, is, is why, why are you so confident in that prediction? In other words, why can't 
the Fed just say, yeah, you know what, we're just going to keep the spigots on? Why can't Congress just say, you know what, we're just going to pass another six trillion in stimulus? Um, well, what's going to prevent them from doing that? A crash. So there's no right now people are saying, oh, you know, the uh, initial claims are falling. We have 500,000, 800,000 uh, initial jobs created every month. We hope you've been enjoying this excellent discussion with Michael Pinto, an expert who clearly pulls no punches. The interview continues over in part two, where Michael explains why the Fed and Congress don't have the air cover to continue the same magnitude of stimulus the market is now addicted to, and thus won't be able to resume it until after the next painful market correction arrives. Michael also explains why the bond market is such a ticking time bomb right now for investors. And of course, I ask him to share his favorite asset classes for each stage of the upcoming progression that he foresees. First, disinflation, then outright deflation, and then a hugely inflationary response from our central planners. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description to this video below, or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to click the subscribe button below if you haven't yet, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. It only takes a second and it really does help us out, as the more subscribers this channel has, the more big name experts we can attract on this program in the future. Oh, and if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who takes into consideration the macro risks and market opportunities mentioned by Michael, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. All right, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with Michael Pento.